Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 8th, 2015. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, February 6th, is 7307. This morning, A Vision for You presents Bill's Story. Chapter 1 of the big book is devoted to Bill W.'s story, essentially a 12-step call. It's a frightening, vivid, and detailed account of one alcoholic's descent into madness. It is also the inspiring and uplifting story of his complete recovery and his resulting mental, physical, and spiritual health. It is this humbling of Bill in the presence of powerlessness, this whittling down of his puffed ego, this forced confrontation with his essential finiteness, which ultimately allows Bill to embrace a spiritual remedy to his alcohol problem. Bill W.'s story gives us inspiration and hope as we see that even someone hopelessly, seemingly hopeless, addicted to alcohol as Bill W. was, can recover. And if he can, so can anyone. Here to present Bill's story in further detail is Harlan. Harlan is a recovered compulsive overeater originally from Chicago who currently resides in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. (laughs) Honey, Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous who is dedicated to teaching and living the program of recovery as outlined in the big book. And we welcome you, Harlan, this morning. Thank you very much, Leah. I'm very, very honored to be here, very happy to be here. This morning we're going to talk about Chapter 1 in the big book. We're going to talk about Bill's story. And Bill's story is a story that is extremely important because it is through his story and through identifying with the way Bill thinks and the way Bill thinks the way Bill drinks, that we have that sense of identification that draws us into the book and wants us to learn more and more about this situation. Bill Wilson was a very human person. Uh, He was 43 years old with three and a half years of sobriety when the big book was written. The big book was written in 37 and 38. It was published in April of 39. Bill was born on the 26th of November in 1895 in East Dorset, Vermont. And East Dorset, Vermont is a very small town in Vermont, and uh, there's a lot of mining there. There's a lot of forestry there. There's a lot of marble granite mining that goes on there. Many of our nation's monuments have are adorned with cornerstones that come uh, where the limestone, the marble come from East Dorset, Vermont. Bill uh, had a younger sister, two years younger than him, named Dorothy. And uh, Dorothy and Bill were, were the victims of, uh, of a divorce. Emily and, Gilman, uh, Emily and Gilman Wilson were their parents. And Gilman Wilson was an alcoholic, as was Gilman's father before him. Gilman's alcoholism uh, 
forced the family into divorce in 1906, and Emily, Bill's mother, went to Boston to become one of the first female osteopathic physicians in the nation. Gilman went out to Western Canada to work in the mines that were out there, which was familiar to him from his life in Vermont. And Dorothy and Bill Wilson were raised by their maternal grandparents, Fayette and Emily Griffith. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And Fayette and Emily uh, Griffith raised Bill. And Bill was a, a very tall, lanky, skinny kid. And he grew up with an inferiority complex. And he really felt, as many of us do, that he had to work three times as hard just to be equally as good. He found an old violin in his grandfather's attic, and he became so proficient at the violin through his hard work that he actually became co-first chair of his school's orchestra. He also was a captain of the football team, and after finding a baseball glove up in Grandpa's attic, he also became the baseball team's starting shortstop and co-captain of the baseball team as well. He read in a book as a child that only an aborigine could fashion a boomerang that would actually come back to you, and he worked tirelessly at fashioning a boomerang, and when it actually did come back, it almost took his grandfather's head off because his grandfather happened to be walking by at the time. Bill was very dedicated. He was very determined to prove to the world that he was somebody. He was very determined to take his place in the world. And he also suffered from depression. And when he was 17 years old, he was hopelessly in love with a girl named Bertha Bamford. And Bertha went to New York City for what was uh, seemingly a very routine medical procedure. And she passed away during this procedure. And Bill, at age 17, fell into the first of his many, many depressive states. And he suffered from depression his entire life. If we look at Bill's story, it begins on page one, and we read, War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh, Plattsburgh and upstate New York, were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudice of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. Now, when he says over there, that denotes World War I. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog roll on old stone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is near forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Now the reason that this is important is the pot that he's talking about here has nothing to do with marijuana. The way that they drank beer in England at that time was in pint pots and quart pots. And they were never sitting while they were drinking. They always stood to consume alcohol. And in the saloon, in the inn, there was a 
bar that was erected so that they could sort of lean against the bar, hence the name bar. And as an homage to those days, we also see that bar stools are raised well above the level of a dining room chair, a kitchen chair, or a living room chair. And that's kind of an homage to those days where when you drank, you did not, you did not sit. Now, the reason that... Carlin, your voice is warbling. Can you adjust your phone? I'm sorry? Your voice is kind of warbly. Can you adjust your phone? Please My don't phone. interrupt the speaker. Thank you so much. Harlan, we do hear you. It just sounds a little bit perhaps distant. I don't know if there's an adjustment okay. you can make. We, well, heard, we hear you perfectly, but let's just see if we can improve it. All right. I'm going to switch to the actual wired headset that comes with the iPhone. Is that better? Let's give that a try. Yes. Is that better? Okay. I yes. actually just I actually just switched headsets. Not a problem at all. Okay. Okay. So if you can increase on. the volume a little bit or just increase your voice, that'll be okay. All even right. better. I'll, I'll, I, I don't get told to talk louder very often, Leah, but I'm uh, in this case. Uh, I'm definitely in this <laughs> case going to talk it up a little bit. So <laughs> there we go. Talk. Wonderful. And please okay. don't interrupt. Thank you, everybody. Okay. okay. No problem. Continue. Thank you. Okay. The pot becomes important because that's the way they drank beer in England at, at that time. And uh, when they had the when they had this, it was pint pots and quart pots. And the barkeep would often yell at the guys that were drinking, watch your pints and quarts over there. And when that expression came over here to the colonies in the 1600s and 1700s, it became watch your P's and Q's. And that's where we get that into the language today. So you see, we give you everything here. We give you a little etymology. We'll give you a little Yiddish later. We'll give you everything. But it's very important that we kind of remember that. The other thing that's kind of uh, funny, and God likes to laugh too, is the actual person that, that lays in this grave, his name is Thatcher. And a little later on this morning, we're going to learn about another person named Thatcher, and we're going to see how integral that, plays in, that uh, name plays into the story. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed, 22 and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. I took a night law course and obtained employment as investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little, I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Now, what do we see happening in the life of Bill Wilson at this time is exactly parallel to me. And so can I identify with this? Absolutely. Every dream that I dreamed was annihilated in the face of this illness. I wanted to go to homecoming. I wanted to go to the dance. I wanted to talk to the girl. I wanted to look good. I wanted to be good at sports. 
I wanted to be a person that looked like the other kids. I wanted to be a person that could do the things that the other kids could do physically. And every dream that I dreamed of looking good and career and advancement was annihilated. It went up in smoke because of this illness. And can I relate to this? Absolutely. Now, it goes on to say here, though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. What do we see here is the first victim of, of, of alcoholism. What do we see here as the first victim of compulsive overeating or any addictive behavior is the truth. The very first thing to go out the window when this illness is practiced is the truth. Honesty. It goes right out the window. And he's lying to Lois. Excuse me. He's lying to himself. He wants to stop drinking, but he can't, and he has no other explanation for it, so he begins to lie. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. Now, before we move another step, let's take a look at this $1,000 thing, because many of you that are listening to this on the line are thinking to yourself, $1,000, that's not a big deal. Well, if you go back and examine prices and incomes during the 1920s, the early 20s, we find that $1,000 is a lot of money, and that indicates he's doing very well. You could buy a brand new car at this time for about $500. I don't know about anywhere else, but I know that in Chicago at this time, you could buy a brand new house, not a house in a schlock area, a house in a nice area for about $1,500, $1,800. So let's not lose sight of the fact that if you could save $1,000 in the 1920s, you were doing very well. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagine that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements But my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. You had a situation in the 1920s, the 20s and the 50s, were the greatest boom periods of our economy in the history of our country. And you have in the 1920s a situation where literally if you took a chimp You took a chimpanzee and you said to the chimp, throw a dart at the board, and the chimp hit a stock. You could take that stock and and invest in it on about a 10% margin, and you'd probably make money. But Bill Wilson, he saw that this was not going to last. And he went to the people that that were uh, on Wall Street, and he said, look, we need more information. And they poo-pooed it. 
They poo-pooed it. They said, you know, we really don't. We're doing just fine. Now, remember that Bill was not really a stockbroker. What he was was he was a New York City stock speculator, and he made his living selling his opinion on where these stocks would go to investors, and they would cut him in on the profit. So he was cunning, baffling, and powerful too. So he and Lois, they get this idea that Wall Street did need this information. Let's see where he goes from there, bottom of two. We gave up our positions, and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with tent blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success at speculation. Excuse me. So we had a little money, but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year, and we've talked about that. Now, let's see where he goes from here because he's about to go up and down very quickly. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. Here's the kid from East Dorset, Vermont, the tall, skinny, lanky kid with depression, never had anything in his life. He's one of the princes of Wall Street. The information he gave them made him a very, very well-respected person. He's going good. Everything is good. He had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. Now, can you just imagine, if you're listening to this, that whatever it is you do, whether you're a housewife, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a secretary or a, or a streetcar conductor, it doesn't matter. Could you just imagine that because of his opinion, people were investing millions, not just a few people. It says, my, excuse me, my ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. Could you just imagine what that would do for your ego or my ego? My Lord. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. People want to be close to him. They want to be around him. They're hoping that some of what he has will rub off on them. Now, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. So he's getting drunk quite a bit now because as we're going to find out in our program that it isn't just anger or fear or jealousy or guilt or shame or remorse, but it's the buildup of any emotions that are going to make the brain tell you to drink or in our case, tell you to eat because food is never the problem. Now, I love doing retreats and I love traveling the country doing them. And I love saying that line right there, food to a compulsive overeater is never the problem. Food is the answer to the problem. And in Bill's life, 
alcohol is the answer to the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the intenable, unbelievable, horse-stunning pain that came about in the life of Bill Wilson when he was not drinking. And success is an emotion. Happiness is an emotion. Fear is an emotion. And when these emotions built up within Bill, his mental twist told him, drink the liquor. Because the liquor became the answer to his problem that day. Liquor solved his problem of this emotional buildup of happiness and success. And that's why one of the worst things in the world that can happen in my life as a compulsive overeater is good times. Because I will eat when times are good and I will eat as, and when times are bad. And what is good and bad? It's only a perception of my ego. But they are emotions. And this is what's happening to Bill. He's getting drunk day and night. Let's continue, page three. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. So he's quarreling with them. They're getting on him. Bill, don't drink so much. Bill, you're getting drunk. Bill, you're making bad judgment. Bill, what's wrong with you? Why can't you stop drinking? A row is a disturbance. The remonstrances are these guys getting on him. And what happens is, in the last sentence of the previous paragraph, he's making a host of fair-weather friends, and here he's becoming a lone wolf. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. Because all I ever wanted to be was thin, but all I ever wanted to do was eat. And my eating took precedence over people. My eating took precedence over everything I ever wanted in my life because it was right there. It was right beyond my grip. But in my grip was the food, and the food solved my problem that day. And he's drinking, and he's becoming a lone wolf. And his friends are, he's saying to his friends, who needs you? I couldn't care less about you. Get away from me. And he's drinking instead of being with his friends. And all he ever wanted to be was successful and popular. But now all he wants to do is drink. Can I identify with Bill? You bet I can. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. Um, Bill was very human. And I'm sure that that was his take on things at that time. But let's just move on and say Bill was very human. In 1929, bottom of three, 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. My wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen, think Tiger Woods or any of these big golfers now. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to caroam around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. This would be Black Tuesday, Tuesday, October 29, 1929. The stock market crashed. The floor fell out of the stock market and everything went to hell. 
after one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from the hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock. Five hours after the market closed, the ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I went. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. Make note of that if you're following in your book. We're going to come back to talking about his disgust at the people that were killing themselves. And why did they kill themselves? Because their God was dead. Their God was the market. Their God was the money. So they were killing themselves because they saw no way out. They saw no way around it. But what did Bill know without knowing it? Because he doesn't know anything about step one yet. He knows that liquor will make him feel better. And what he's looking for there is the effect that Dr. Silkworth talks about in the doctor's opinion. Bill knew without knowing it that liquor would change his perception of reality. That food will instantly change my perception of reality. That food is doing something for me, not to me, for me, that it does not do for the normal temperate eater. That a, that a Kit Kat bar or a piece of chocolate cake will instantly change my perception in an almost psychotic, delusional way. Has anything changed? No. But when you give me those foods, everything I see is different. Everything I feel is different for about 10 seconds. For about 10 seconds, that girl that I have a crush on is certain to be mine. That money that I don't have is certain to be mine. And with no effort on my part, it will just be given to me. Now, that may sound crazy, but that's exactly what goes on in my mind when I'm under the effect of that food, when I have that effect. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. He's drinking now. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. And that's what they call that liquid courage. And in my case, it's that chocolate courage. You give me enough chocolate. You give me enough pie. And everything is going to be okay. My size 60-inch pants look just like James Bond's outfit. My, my five extra large shirt, I look at myself in the mirror and I look just exactly like Napoleon Solo from The Man from Uncle. If you don't know who these people are, you can Google them. I'm 60. I'm sorry. Tell you. What can I tell you? Okay. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living, living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me, but drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. We went to live with my wife's parents. Now, let's stop here for just a second and put into perspective the reality that he's living in. Lois was his wife, and Lois was a Burnham. Lois's father was Dr. Burnham, and Dr. Burnham did not like Bill Wilson at all. Lois suffered from ectopic pregnancies. 
and Lois was bleeding to death. Lois, Lois's father goes over there, finds Lois hemorrhaging from an ectopic pregnancy, gets her to the hospital. Yuts cannot be found. Bill cannot be found. He's drinking in some bar, and Dr. Burnham leaves him a note on the kitchen table. Lois is bleeding out. She's hemorrhaging. Get to this hospital right now. The next morning, Bill Wilson comes in. He hasn't shaved. He hasn't showered. He stinks to high hell, and here he comes drunk. That was the, that was the end of it. Now, when he says, we went to live with my wife's parents, you have to remember, here's the Prince of Wall Street coming back to live with the Burnhams, and Dr. Burnham can't stand him, cannot stand him, and this is who he's forced to live with. Bottom of four, I found a job and lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Lois is on her feet at Loman's department store. She also went to work in another department store. Uh, but she's making $19 a week plus commission. She's making about $26, $27 a week. She's on her feet in high heels, all put together 10, 15 hours a day. She leaves in the morning to go to work. She asks Bill, Bill, please clean yourself up. You stink. Take the breakfast dishes off the table and put them in the sink. She comes home after the hard day's work that she just put in. He's on the couch, still stinks. Breakfast dishes have not been taken from the table to the sink. So you could just imagine what their domestic life is like at this time. He's living with someone who hates his guts. He and his wife are in, in alcohol hell. And let's go on to see page five, top of five. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. I could do a retreat. I've always been tempted to do this. I'm gonna, I, I'd like to one day do a retreat just on that sentence. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And as I look at my plunge from a, a kid to a 335 pounds in, as a senior in high school and a 500-pound 20-year-old and a 600-pound 30-year-old, say whatever, I look at this and I went from occasional binging to more binging to, where, to a point where I was eating all day. My food habit in the 1970s, 1980s, not my cocaine habit, not my heroin habit, not my hooker or gambling habit, my food habit was 100 to $150 a day. My income was nowhere near that. Page five, bathtub, tin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. So the more he drinks, the more he drinks. The more he drinks, the more he drinks. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. He's got delirium tremens now. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required. The key word there is required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, 
I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. So what is Bill doing there that we know so well? Begins with a D and ends in a T. He's going on a diet. That's the right answer, diet. He's going on a diet. He sees that he can't drink, but he doesn't have anywhere to go. He doesn't have any knowledge. He doesn't have AA to go to. He doesn't have any of these things, so he's going on a diet, and we've done that too. We hunker down on our own unaided willpower, but as we do, what happens over time is these emotions will build and build and build and build, and it will force us back right into the food. Because as we just covered, food is never the problem. Food is the answer to a problem. And the problem is the buildup of emotions will wake up the mental twist. The mental twist will tell us to eat the food. The emotional side of us needs relief from that intenable pain. And the intelligent side of our brain says, no, 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 we're not going to eat the food. And the emotional side of the brain demands the food. And my emotional part will get stronger and stronger. And any time the emotional part of my brain has conflict with the intelligent part of my brain, the emotional part of my brain will win every time. Can I relate to Bill Wilson now? You bet I can. Gradually, page five, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious vendor, and the chance vanished. I did a retreat a number of years ago, like two years ago, I think, in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is not too far from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I had the pleasure of eating dinner on Saturday night in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which was exciting. But anyway, the uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey group approached Bill Wilson when he was on one of his diets. And this is a story within the story. And they said to him, we would like to make this purchase and we would like you to be involved here and we'll cut you in on the profit. And this is during, as I said, on Bill's one of his periods of sobriety or what we would call a diet. So they meet in this hotel room in Cherry Hill and one of the guys has a bottle of moonshine whiskey. This was in the days of prohibition and the bill, the, or excuse me, the bottle goes around and Bill doesn't take any. Remember, he's on one of his diets now goes around again, and the guy pokes him, and he says, hey, Wilson, I made this myself. This is Jersey Lightning. Certainly you can have one drink. After all, I made this myself. With no more thought than that, Bill Wilson has one drink of this moonshine whiskey, and because of his physical allergy to it, he doesn't come out of that hotel room for three days. He got so drunk, he couldn't leave that room for three days. And, of course, now he's got to go home and tell Lois and tell Dr. Burnham and tell himself that he failed yet again. And he says, the chance vanished. Page five, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. So he's back on his diet. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Shortly afterward, <clears throat> sorry, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. See, the intelligent part of Bill's brain says no more drinking, but the emotional part of Bill's brain is demanding that he drink, and the emotional will win out over the intelligent every time. I, it hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? See, now he's beginning to question his sanity. I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective, seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, bottom of five, going back on his diet, I tried again. Sometime past and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. Now let's stop right there. They didn't have a telephone at the gas station. They didn't have a telephone at the jewelry store. They didn't have a telephone at the diner. He's got to go in to make a phone call in the cafe where there's liquor. So he could say to himself, I was just in there to make a call, and a whiskey just jumped into my mouth. And that may sound crazy, but how many of us have sabotaged ourselves in exactly that way. We engineered our group of friends to meet at a certain restaurant knowing that we wanted something on the menu at that restaurant. It may not have been the nicest ambiance. It may not have been the best location, but we knew that we wanted to try to manipulate them to going to that restaurant because the portions are bigger. Or there was something on the menu that you just had to have. And once you knew you were in that restaurant, you were going to order the one thing that you wanted. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. But I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. What forced Bill to take the first drink? the mental twist. What forced Bill to take the 20th drink, the physical allergy? If he can't drink because of the allergy and he can't keep from drinking because of the twist of the mind, then he is powerless over alcohol and his life is unmanageable. Can I relate to Bill Wilson now? <laughs> you bet I can. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a metal fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles in oblivion. Now, on page four, he's looking down his nose at the people that are killing themselves. And now on page six, he's considering it. Because he doesn't see any way out. And for every person that is a compulsive overeater on this phone, you are a miracle. Because many of us, including me for sure, I can only speak for me, I wanted to die. I didn't know how to live in this world, and I didn't want to anymore. Because if you remember on page two, it says here that 
at one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. That was my whole life. My drinking was not yet continuous. It disturbed my wife. It disturbed me too. My eating disturbed me. I wanted to just be a person among people, and I didn't know how to be that. I could not beat the game. I couldn't do it, and I wanted to die. I wanted to die passionately. So now he's drinking for the worst reason of them all, oblivion. And I was eating for oblivion. I didn't know it, excuse me, at the time. But I ate constantly because I couldn't bear to feel the feelings, the physical pain of being that morbidly obese. The mental anguish of being that morbidly obese was too much for me to handle. And I ate because of the pain of eating. And that is complete insanity. I have eaten railroad cars full of Doritos and, and ships full of candy bars to blot out the pain of eating railroad cars full of Doritos and ships full of chocolate bars because I couldn't bear the pain. So the more I ate, the fatter I got. The fatter I got, the more I ate. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. How I lived with the loneliness I felt and how I lived with the physical pain. My legs were so swollen at the bottom. My ankles had such profuse edema, that extreme swelling. I had no hair on my legs. I couldn't wear socks because they would dig into the swelling. I couldn't bear the thought of the skin rubbing together anymore. And I had, that, I had that contact dermatitis. I smelled like a zoo. I wasn't wearing underwear. I had layers of towels shoved between layers of flab to keep the skin from rubbing together and I couldn't stand the pain anymore. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. And inside, I sort of knew I wanted to die because I would never hold a girl's hand. I would never kiss a girl. I would never dance with a girl. Did I want to die? Absolutely. And when it says here, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, I don't know how I survived. For mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. He doesn't want to live, and now he's actively considering killing himself. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Lois and Bill tried a lot of geographic cures. When he was drinking in the country, they would go to the city. When he was drinking in New York, they would go to the country. Nothing helped. Nothing helped. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture were so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly weep. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. 
Is his being 40 pounds underweight or some of the situations that many of us have incurred, are they any more or less dangerous? They're equal. They're equal. He's dying. He's dying of malnutrition. He's dying of malnutrition in the richest country in the world. I know there's a depression on, but there's still more food here and still more opportunity to nourish yourself here than there is anywhere else. And in the middle of the biggest city in the United States, in the middle of the richest country in the world, he's dying of malnutrition. Now, we talked about Dorothy Wilson, Bill's younger sister, and she was married to a guy named Dr. Leonard Strong. And Leonard liked Bill, unlike Dr. Burnham. He liked Bill, and he, he thought Bill was a good guy. And we're going to see here how in these next couple of paragraphs, the loving hand of God is going to begin a series of miracles that are going to put some sunlight into the shivering dark cave of alcoholism. We're now going to see the hand of God in a more visible sense right now. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Now, of all of the hospitals that Bill could have been admitted to, he is now about to be admitted to the Towns Hospital in New York City, which is the best place in the world for alcoholism and drug addiction known to man. Is it odd or is it God that he is also going to be placed, of all the places he could have gone, he goes to the towns. Of all the doctors that he could have been assigned to, he's going to be assigned to Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. Dr. William Duncan Silkworth is going to give Bill some information. Let's see what happens here. Let's see the hand of God. Under the so-called Belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily, the allergy, and mentally, the twist of the mind. So now Bill has information. He has information, and let's see where he goes just on information alone. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. I bet that if I got a chance to know many of the people on this phone line right now or listening on tape, I bet that if I got a chance to know you, I would be astounded at the things that you were able to accomplish in your life. Many of you have accomplished things that are fantastic, but there's one thing you cannot do. There's one thing that you will never be able to do, and there's one thing that none of us will ever, 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 ever be able to do. And I say that redundantly because I want to drive the point home. 
that no matter whether you be a doctor, a professor, or a bus driver, or a taxi cab driver, it will not make one bit of difference because the one thing you will not be able to do is to control the amount of, or excuse me, the two things, the, the one thing you will not be able to do is to control the amount you eat once you've started because of the allergy, and you will not be able to keep from eating now that you want to because of the mental twist. So no matter what you've accomplished in your life, your accomplishments will mean nothing when it comes up against the steamroller of this illness. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. He thinks, okay, he's got this information. He knows what's wrong. Now I'm good. Now I'm okay. Now he goes into that hospital in 1933. We're going to read about three hospitalizations that Bill is going to take. Three times he's going to be hospitalized for his alcoholism. But something very, very miraculous is going to happen between two and three. Okay. <clears throat> Understanding myself now, excuse me, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. Goose hanging high means times are good. He's on his diet, right? Starts with a D, ends in a T. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge, right? He knows everything. Everything's good. Oh, wait a minute. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. What the heck? Oh, the curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This is the spring of 1934. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. Wet brain is really a dry brain. Alcohol saps cells of their hydration. That's why these guys, they wake up and they just want to drink and drink and drink because they're thirsty, they're dry. Now, there's two organs of the body that will not rehydrate like that. One is the liver and one is the brain. So what happens over time is if you suck enough of the hydration out of the brain, they become human vegetables. And they'll sit there in the asylum and they'll come in in the morning and wake them up and change their diaper and feed them and put them in front of the TV set and change their diaper and feed them and that's their life. People come to see them. They don't know the people. They don't know anything. They're just literally human vegetables. And this is what Bill, excuse me, this is what Dr. Soapworth is telling Lois. And Bill's overhearing this because he's coming out of the, he's coming out of the stupor. And he doesn't know what to make of this. He just wants to die. And Lois loved Bill. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Lois and Bill loved each other very, very much. Now, Dr. Silkworth knows the problem, but he does not know a solution. Let's keep going. Bottom of seven. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. She wants to die. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining the endless procession of socks who had gone on before I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. 
No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. He's done. He's defeated. He's been told what's wrong, and he still can't stop drinking. He doesn't see that there's any solution. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital. A broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. He was scared sober for a while. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, 1934, that would be November 11th, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. Uh, Here's some beautiful promises. You don't have to wait for page 83. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Beautiful promises right there. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. Now, we're going to depart from the actual book here for just a second, so stay with me, because we need to know a little bit about what's going on and how all this is going to play out in our world today. And we're going to go back to Rhode Island. And in Rhode Island, there is a very, very successful family, and they own a company called Burlington Mills. And if you've ever walked on carpeting in your life, you've probably walked on Burlington carpeting. And they're also major stockholders because carpeting isn't usually made with natural fibers. They are major stockholders in a company that is still traded today on the New York Stock Exchange called Allied Chemical. And these are very wealthy people. And their wayward son, Roland Hazard, is an alcoholic. And the Hazards had a summer home. They lived in Rhode Island, but they had a summer home in a place called Manchester, Vermont. Manchester, Vermont is a very wealthy area right outside East Dorset, Vermont, where Bill Wilson was born and raised. And the Hazards were very wealthy, but their son was a drunk. And Roland even went so far as to having himself sequestered on a Caribbean island. And the person that brought him his supplies was instructed not to bring him any alcoholic beverages whatsoever. And Roland was able to stay sober while on the island. Of course, he gets off the island and he's drunk within the two shakes of a lamb's tail. Roland wanted to give his mother the gift of seeing him sober one more time. And Roland, in the early 1930s, psychiatry, the art of psychiatry, was really in its infancy. And Roland sought out the services of the most preeminent psychiatrist at that time, a man by the name of Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud wasn't taking on any new patients. Now remember, money was no object. And he sought out 
Sigmund Freud's number two man, that his number one protege or the number two psychiatrist in the world, a guy by the name of Dr. Adler. And Adler wasn't taking on any new patients either. The number three psychiatrist in the world lived in Switzerland. And in Switzerland lived Dr. Carl Jung. And Carl Jung psychoanalyzed Roland for one year. Between 1933 and 1934, Roland was in Switzerland with Dr. Jung. And at the end of his stay in Dr. Jung's care, he stayed sober. And Dr. Jung tells him, it is now okay for you to return home to the States. Roland goes to the shipyard. And what do they have at the shipyard? A bar. And Roland gets drunk very, very quickly and very, very, very drunk. And they bring him back to Dr. Jung. And Jung says to him, I have misdiagnosed you. You are not all the things we talked about. You are an alcoholic and you're going to die. And Roland begs Dr. Jung, please, doctor, please. There must be something. There has to be something. Now, is it odd or is it God? that Roland got too young because Freud and Adler believed that all solutions lie within the mind. But Jung broke rank with them because he believed that here and there, there were people who experienced a phenomenon of a spiritual experience, not a spiritual awakening. And he called it a phenomenon because he didn't understand it himself and he didn't know how to bring it about, but he believed in it. And he imparts this information on Roland Hazard. And Roland had always been a good church member, but he was still drinking. And Roland goes back to New York City sober, armed with this information, and he doesn't exactly want to go back to organized church, but he goes to the cavalry mission in New York City, where there are people under the tutelage of Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker would later become a very important part of Bill Wilson's life, but Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopal minister there, and he ran the Oxford Group in New York. The Oxford Groupers were people founded by Frank Buckman of England, and Buckman was a Lutheran minister who believed that Christians were losing their enthusiasm for Christianity, enthusiasm, there's a good word. It comes from two ancient Greek words, entheos, from God. And Buckman goes to China on a mission. And he sees people that are, they have an enthusiasm for Christ. They have an enthusiasm for their religion through service to other people. Through an altruistic lifestyle of serving other people and putting others first, he sees a rekindling of this enthusiasm. And he begins his movement. And since he lived in England near Oxford University, and many of his followers lived there too, they became known as the Oxford Group Movement. And, and the Episcopalian minister in New York, Sam Shoemaker, is a member of the Oxford Group Movement. And Roland goes in and makes a friend named Sebra Graves Jr. Sebra Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard are both drunks 
who know nothing of the problem. They don't know about the physical allergy, and they don't know about the mental twist. But they're staying sober by practicing the tenets of the Oxford group movement. And they are staying sober, and they are doing so happily. Now let's go to Albany, New York. The mayoral elections are in full swing. And there is a family, as I promised you at the beginning of the chapter, and their name is Thatcher. And their son, Edwin Ebby Thatcher, is a drunk. And they have a home in Manchester, Vermont, right outside East Dorset, Vermont, too. And their son, Ebby Thatcher, is embarrassing the family. He is embarrassing the family because his father was running for re-election and Ebby is a drunk. And they tell Ebby, get your butt over to the house in Manchester. Start fixing it up because whether we win or lose, we're coming out for the summer. And Ebby goes back to Manchester, Vermont to get the summer home fixed up. While he's there, he is painting a wall and some pigeons land on the wall. So he goes in the house and gets his shotgun out and starts blasting the pigeons. Well, the neighbors don't like that very much, and they call the police. The police bring Ebby in, and they give him a warning. Do this again, and you're going to Brattleboro, which is the insane asylum in Vermont, which is where they put alcoholics, in Brattleboro Insane Asylum. Ebby drives, not long after that, Ebby drives right through the house, right through the kitchen wall of a woman in Manchester, Vermont, drives right into her house, shows no contrition whatsoever, and says, not I'm sorry, doesn't say forgive me, doesn't say don't worry, I'll take care of the damage. He flippantly says to the woman, hey, toots, how about a cup of coffee? So she's indignant. She calls the police, and they are about to sentence Ebby to be in Brattleboro Insane Asylum. Now let's go back to Roland and Zebra Graves Jr., because it is now the summer of 1934. It's August of 34. Ebby is in a holding cell. What is happening with Roland is he goes to his family and he is sober and they are just felling. If you don't know what felling is, it's a Yiddish word. Rapture beyond belief. Rapture, happiness, you're busting from happiness. Busting from happiness. They're felling. Even though they don't know they're felling. They're felling, trust me. And they see Roland and they say, Roland, go on a vacation. You've been working so hard with the Oxford group take a vacation, anywhere you want, we'll pay. So he goes back to the Oxford group, and him and Sieber Graves Jr. are discussing where they should go, and they decide to go to Vermont. Now, is it odd, or is it God? Because if they had gone to Vermont a week before, I'm dead. If they went to Vermont a week after, I'm dead. But they happen to go at the tail end of August, beginning of September of 1934, 
and Sheba Graves and Roland, while there, they get wind of a guy that they knew of named Ebby Thatcher and his escapades. Now, who was the judge presiding over Ebby's case? It just happened to be Sheba Graves Sr. Is it odd or is it God that Sheba Graves Jr.'s father is the judge in this case? It is now September of 1934. Ebby signs extradition papers that, that says if he doesn't go to the Oxford group with these gentlemen and do what they say, he will be remanded back to Vermont, extradited back to Vermont immediately for sentencing into Brattleboro Insane Asylum. Ebby agrees reluctantly. He goes with them to the Oxford group meetings in September of 34, and September comes and goes, he's sober. October comes and goes, he's sober. He has two months of sobriety in November of 1934. September to October and October to November is two months of sobriety. Eddie is now told by the Oxford groupers to go give testimony. He says, what's testimony? He says, they said to him, now go out and tell what we told you to somebody else. Every Jewish holiday in the world is the same. They tried to kill us. A couple of us got away. Let's eat. And then after we're done eating, we're supposed to tell all this to our kids. Okay, fine. He says, I don't want to go give testimony. And I says, okay, that's fine, but you have to go to Brattleboro if you don't. He says, you know what? I think I'll go give testimony. So, Evie Thatcher is thinking, like Winnie the Pooh, think, 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 think. Who can I go give testimony to here in New York City where I won't embarrass the daylights out of myself? And he remembers his old drinking buddy, Bill Wilson. And he calls on Bill. And it is November of 1934. Ebby has just enjoyed two months of sobriety for the first time in his adult life. He is coming to call on a drunk Bill Wilson. Let's go to the bottom of page eight and let's see where we go from there. Very bottom of eight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. That's in italics. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing an oasis drinkers are like that. Eaters are too. We all love our binge buddies, don't we? We love those binge buddies that we had earlier in life and when we were in our illness. We love the people we could just eat our heads off with and they wouldn't say anything to us and we wouldn't say anything to them. Okay. The door opened, and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had gotten into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me simply but smilingly. He said, 
I've got religion. I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching, but he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. He had come to pass his experience along to me, if I cared to have it. If I cared to have it. Some of you out there may be trying to force-feed this to somebody that needs it or that you think needs it. If they don't want to do it, this is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. There's no chapter in, in, in this book called Into Needing It or Wanting It. There's a chapter into action. This is an action program, and you have to want to do it. I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proper temperance pledge I never signed, my grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doing, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how, how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, these recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. So step one is from Silkworth where he gets the powerless condition of mind and body. The physical allergy and the mental twist are step one. We are powerless over food and our life is unmanageable. And now Bill, through Ebby, is now getting step two. This is your emanation of step two. This is where your flashpoint is. Now Bill is being presented something that he has never seen before in his life. He is witnessing in front of his face an actual known alcoholic that is sober. Silkworth was not an alcoholic. So for the very first time in his life, he is seeing Ebby, and Ebby is presenting this spiritual solution to him, and he is resisting us as many of us did. And if there's two steps that are the most underutilized steps, it's two and ten. And where we see people struggling in two is because they are dragging a God from their childhood or from God knows where into their program that never worked for them before, will not work for them now, and they just can't understand why we talk about God. They don't get why we're talking about God because it is through a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps that the emotional buildup which causes the problem is not, the, the emotions do not build up to that point when I work the steps. Therefore, the terrible cycle will not be set in motion. If I'm having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I don't want the food because my emotions do not build up to the level where my mental twist demands it. I can have two things happen when I want food. I can eat the food and get the effect, or I can work the steps and get the effect. I'm going to trade a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of happiness. 
I have not compulsively overeaten in 16 years because I don't want to. God makes that possible. And if you have a God in your head that does not make that possible, fire that God for for heaven's sakes and get a new God. Let's keep reading because we're pressed for time and I don't want Leah to get mad at me. He talked for hours, childhood memory. Wait, I think I did that already. Okay, sorry. But his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, these recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. I had always believed in a power, capital, greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher. Cipher is a zero, is a nothing. And aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe, capital, who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I got, as I had gone. With ministers in the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God, sorry, personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him, his moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. Can I relate to him here? Absolutely. I took what I wanted for my religion and I left the rest. I didn't want any part of it. Now, this, this next paragraph is timeless. Timeless. You could read this paragraph and bring up doubt about God in every millennium in the world. Let's read it. The wars which had been fought, the burnings and chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since the power of God in human affairs was negligible, the brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal. And he certainly had me. But my friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. And he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. More promises. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and that was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. Now, Ebby did not know what Bill knew about the problem. Ebby had not met Dr. Soapworth. He didn't know about the allergy of the body or the twist of the mind or the effect that we're looking for. He knew none of that. But he was sober and Bill was drunk. 
And no longer was Bill going to look for the miracles of the past, the splitting of the Red Sea and the oil that burned for eight days instead of one or, or the manna from heaven. He wasn't looking for that. He looked at a man sitting in front of him that he knew to be an alcoholic, and the man was sober. Now, getting put into this scenario, if you could be a fly on the wall, imagine Bill knows the problem, and he's drunk. Ebby doesn't know the problem, and he's sober. So the synthesis of what's happening here, the putting together in Bill's mind is now he knows the problem, now he knows the solution. Is Bill Wilson the first person in the world that's ever going to get this information? We don't know that. But here's what we can bet our lives on. He's going to be the first person in the history of planet Earth to take this information, put it together, and move it forward so that we could be alive today. Very bottom of 11. I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped the new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. Bill's not ready to let go yet. The word God still allows a certain antipathy, that hesitation, shyness. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens. However loving his sway might be, I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. Now, Ebby is going to suggest something to Bill here that is going to change the course of history forever and open the door to tens of millions of people like all of us listening to this right now. My friend suggested when what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Now come to think of it, I've never argued with my conception of anything. Now I can have a God that's of my understanding. I don't have to have the God of, that I was presented in, in, as a child that was going to kick my butt if I ate uh, unkosher food or was going to kick my butt if I rode my bike on Saturday. I don't have to have that God. I can have a God of my understanding. Now, there are going to be theologians today, and there's going to be clergymen today, and authors and poets, and there's going to be musicians, and people are going to consider today what is God and what God is not. I don't have to enter into that. There are two things I need to know about God. There is one, and it's not me. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I only have to be willing to believe. I don't even have to believe. And beginning calls us to step three. So we've seen step one, step two. Now we're seeing a reference to step three because we're going to learn in chapter five that step three is a decision and a beginning. I saw the growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. How do I demonstrate that I want him enough? By working the program, by working the steps. All day, every day. 
I take action. I don't sit here and say, God, I want you. I take action. Take action. My God, it's, this is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. Page 12, at long last I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. These are beautiful promises. Don't miss them. You don't have to wait for page 83. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me for a brief moment. I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. Challenge God. Challenge him and see if you, don't, you find him wanting. You can't do it. He's too powerful. He's too, too loving. You cannot challenge him and say he didn't come. Maybe you won't get the answer you want. There's a lot of houses here in Scottsdale I want to live in, but I can't. There's a lot of girls I'd like to kiss. I can't. There's a lot of money and cars I'd like to have. I don't have them. But God has provided for me a life, and it's my life, and I wouldn't trade it. But I'd like to have a wife. No, I'm just kidding. But soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors. Now, that worldly clamor is very important because no matter how spiritual we are right now as we listen to this, we will never rise above the level of a human being. And as human beings, we're going to see things we want and we can't have them, or we're going to want things or whatever it is. Worldly clamors are going to happen. I have to work my program. Mostly those within myself, top of 13. And so it had been ever since how blind I had been. Now, it is now the 11th of December, 1934. Bill has been going to the Oxford group meetings with Evie for several weeks, but he's still drinking. He is about to go into the hospital for the third and final time. At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time, treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. Dr. Silkworth tells us several times, and Bill is telling us again, put down the food. Put down the food. Put it down. Because I cannot work the program while I'm eating Kit Kat bars. It just doesn't work that way. Kit Kat bars will prevent me from feeling or knowing what the truth of life is, and I will not have a spiritual awakening as a result of anything. I have to put down the Kit Kat bars. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. For the first, I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. Steps one two, and three. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend, capital, God, take them away root and branch. That's steps six and seven. I have not had a drink since. Excuse me, four, six, and seven. Four, six, and seven. My schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. Step five. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. Step eight, I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong. Nine, ten, because in, in ten you admit when you're wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. He has now taken 
the first 10 steps in the town's hospital with God and Ebby. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly, step 11, prayer and meditation, when in doubt, only asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. He has now taken the first 11 steps. My friend promised, that's Ebby, that when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would, have all the, I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. The key word there is requirements. Simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. Bill always said the white light came in and he had a spiritual experience, not an awakening. An awakening is slow to develop, which is what I have. An experience is bang, God came right there. For a moment, I was alarmed and called my friend the doctor, this is Silkworth, to ask if I were still sane. He listened in wonder as I talked. Finally, he shook his head saying, something has happened to you. I don't understand, but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who've had such experiences. He knows they are real. Now, Bill is a selfish drunk. But let's see what happens to Bill immediately after this spiritual experience. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. Step 12. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. More action. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Faith without works was dead was Ann Smith's favorite Bible verse. Ann Smith is the wife of Dr. Bob, who didn't come into the picture until a little, uh, six months after this. My wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate for my old business associates to remain skeptical for a year and a half during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Tattoo that in your brain. But when all, I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. I must get out of poor Harlan on an everyday basis and work with other people. Have to. 
If I don't smell the body odor of a compulsive overeater at four, five, six hundred pounds who's still eating every once in a while, I will forget where I came from and I'll go right back. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. I'm talking to a man there. I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough going. I always feel better after working with someone else. Now, we remember when Bill lost his friends. Let's see what happens now. We commence to make many fast friends, and a fellowship has grown up among us, which is a wonderful thing to feel a part the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. I only wanted to go somewhere. I was going nowhere. Have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted. Feuds and bitterness of all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one western city, Akron, Ohio, and its environs, there are 1,000 of us in our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek at these informal gatherings. One may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. Now, I travel this country doing a lot of retreats for Overeaters Anonymous, and normally when I do them, I don't know any of you. I'll go into a place, God knows where I don't know, and there'll be 50 people, there'll be 60 people, there'll be 30, whatever it is, 80, 90 and I can stand outside the dining hall. I can stand outside the meetings right before I go in to start. And you hear the laughter. And it's, it's beautiful. It's like a symphony. And all about you, you see this beautiful love. You just see this beautiful love. Okay. <clears throat> I suppose some would be shocked at our seemingly worldliness and levity. But just underneath, there's deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us or we perish. Now, how does faith work in and through us? Through work, through doing, taking action. Most of us feel we, look no, we need to look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And Bill Wilson, co-founder of AA, died January 24th, 1971. I hope that through my efforts here this morning, you can see step one and step two. And you can see in Bill Wilson yourself. I hope that you will be able to identify with Bill and, and thusly do what he did. And that's enough out of me, Leah. I'm done. Harlan, thank you so much for all your efforts this morning. Thank you for your thorough revealing, inspiring, and very entertaining presentation of Bill's story. We thank you very much. And Harlan's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. Now, Harlan, if you're up for it, we're going to open the floor for <laughs> questions. <laughs> would you like to All take right. a drink of water? <laughs> uh, yes, I would. Okay, let's, okay. let's get the first person on the line. <laughs> okay, we'll open the floor now for questions. 
And if you could uh, press star one to unmute, identify yourself, and we're just asking for questions <sighs> only, please. Harlan, star one to unmute. Hi, it's Naomi. Can I say something, please? Questions, please, yes. Okay. Harlan, my question to you is, oh, thank you, and I'm sorry, but you made an impound difference on my life at that conference in New Jersey, and oh. I'm not dead, and I'm still alive, and I love you. Goodbye. Love you too, Naomi. Thank you. Thank you, Naomi. And the next question, please. Star one to unmute. Chrissy M. Chrissy, your turn. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you so much, Harlan. Um, I have been abstinent for um, five months now. It's the first time in my life, and I identify with you a lot about the food being the solution from the beginning, from early on. My question is the emotions that you spoke of today, and there was so much you spoke of, but that specifically, just practically speaking, when I do get overwhelmed with the emotion and I want to run from it, and I have other tricks that I use mm -hmm. um, besides the food now that I don't have that, by the grace mm -hmm. of God. Um, it, it, okay, I'm, I have the luxury. I'm going to make, make it really quick. I have the luxury of being able to sit with my emotions now and process it because I'm not working and I'm early in recovery and God is so good that I can do that. Uh, and I'm projecting how does one, as busy as yourself, function in life when we really need to work this program immediately and, and mm -hmm. deal with what we're feeling. Thank you. That's it. I just do steps 10 all the time. I do step 10. If there's two underutilized steps, they're two and 10. Two and 10 are the most underutilized. Three and four are the most misunderstood. We have 10-step calls that we make, and it's on page 84. Continue to watch for selfishness, self-seeking, resentment, fear, anger. When these things crop up, we, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone. We make amends if we've harmed anybody. We resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help, love and tolerance of others. I have an arsenal of people in my phone that I can call that are going to help me point out my part in these things. I cannot just sit there and have these emotions and not eat. It is not a possibility for me. That's why I have to do 10 steps all day long. And the 10th step and the second step are the most underutilized of the steps. Wherever you see people who are, who are failing in four or failing in nine, they're really failing in two. And if you see people that are allowing this buildup of emotion, they're not doing 10 steps. And the 10 step, you know, we, we, we think it, it's something we do in the morning and at night. That's 11. Step 10 is something that's done all the time, and that's the answer, is I do the steps constantly. Thank you, Chrissy. Hi, this is Rachel H. I have a question. Rachel H., anybody else with a question? Uh, Tracy from Otto has a question. Tara. Tracy. Your name again, I'm sorry. Tara. Tara. Okay, so let's go Rachel H., Please, thank you so much. Hi, good morning, Harlan. Thank you so much for that incredible, incredible um, share. Um, I am, um, I've been in program for about five years and without getting too much into things, my question for you is um, 
when when we talk about this idea of like a daily reprieve, one day at a time. Um, so uh, one of the things I struggle with is my head jumping ahead, um, you know, and and that's obviously me trying me trying to run the show and planning things in the future. Um, are there any actions that you have found have been helpful in terms of bringing the self back to the now and bringing the self back to um, being in today and focusing on today? Um, and obviously getting out of myself is really important and working with mm-hmm. others in the steps, but I'm talking about when that head is going to the planning place and not taking things one day at a time. Um, any suggestions you have on that? Yes. My suggestion would be to work the steps. My suggestion is is that I think I know what girl should want to go out with me. I've been single now for about five years. So I want this girl to go out with me. I want that car. I want this. I want that. I'm writing the script for God. And that's why I need the steps. And I, I have to really lean on step two there because there is a God and it's not me. God knows how to run the world. He doesn't really need my help. You will probably not encounter God today walking around your area, Rachel, pretending he's Harlan. But Harlan will walk around pretending he's God and I've got the script all written out. And it's just a matter of remembering to pray, remembering to meditate, and remembering that there is a God and it's not me. And instead of just saying that to myself, now I have to take action. Now I have to get out of myself. I think I'll call so-and-so. I think I'll call this one. I think I'll do this. And that's basically what I do. That script writing, as we get to Chapter 5, is that selfishness. I want to arrange the ballet, the lights, the music to just suit me, and I can't do that. God knows much better how to run the world than I do. Thank you, Rachel H., for the question. Tracy, your turn. This is Tracy A. Um, My question is, when you look at the big book, um, what's your take on, on how quickly the steps should be taken? Um, I'm worried about uh, sponsees uh, with my obsessive way of doing things. Um, I don't want to push them too hard, but I also don't want to have them not finish the steps in a, in a, in a healthy amount of time. Well, we finish the steps when we're dead, as Naomi could tell you from New Jersey. We definitely finish the steps when we're dead. The faster we go, the better off we are. Uh, the, big has, the big thing in OA is everything is slow, slow, slow. No, that's not good. They used to do this in just a couple of days. If you look at Dr. Bob's nightmare or you look at Bill Dotson's story, Alcoholics Number 3, uh, Dr. Bob got sober on the 10th of June, 1935, and 16 days later, he was calling upon Bill Dotson at the, at the Akron Hospital. So um, there's, there's no way of doing them too fast. I'm not worried about pushing anybody too hard. If I push them too hard and they leave, they weren't ready, and the food will push a lot harder than I can. A Kit Kat bar, Milk Duds, and a, and a, and a Butterfinger bar will push you to the brink of death. How, how much harder can I possibly push a person than chocolate cupcakes. The faster we go through to get to 10, 11, and 12, the better off we are. But we begin 10 as we start cleaning up the path. The minute I'm done with five, I do six and seven, I immediately start doing step 10 calls. Immediately. The faster, the better. If we miss something, which we shouldn't, if we miss something, we have steps for that, we can always go back. But don't be afraid to push him, Tracy. Don't be afraid. 
there, there's, there's no speed limit on this highway. On the broad highway, no speed limit. Keep going. Thank you, Tracy A. Tara, your turn. Did we lose her? Tara, star one to unmute. I was talking away. Goodness. Okay, forget that this this wonderful uh, line does mute you without your <laughs> without your doing it. And um, anyway, my question is, um, I've not heard that about step two so much. Um, how do you um, how do you use step two? Could you just talk about that more? I mean, I, I certainly understand it in a general sense, but maybe you could shed more light. Okay. Step two is a, is, is a very underutilized step, and there's a lot of people who confuse a lot of it. It came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Now, if I have to be restored to sanity, I must have been insane. And if I look at Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, it talks about the insanity of this illness. It talks about the thinking that precedes the first compulsive bite, which is the crux of the problem. Now, if I'm insane and I need to be restored to sanity, I must have a power greater than myself that I can lean on, and that power is one I choose to call God. I must have that power greater than myself because what I see in program and what I've done in program, and I'm here 36 years, people who still want to be self-reliant, they still want to run the show. And what they've done is they have brought their diet mentality from the paying ways into Overeaters Anonymous, and they're using it as a fellowship. But in the final analysis, they're hunkering down on unaided willpower to stay out of the food. The food is not the problem. The food is the answer to the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the emotional buildup which will cause my brain, the emotional part of my brain, to say, wait a minute, we don't feel very good down here. Send in the cupcakes. Send in the Kit Kat bars. And the emotional part of the brain says, send in the food. And the intelligent part of the brain says, no way. No way. I want to get a girlfriend. I don't want to be single for the rest of my life. I'm not going to eat cupcakes. I'm not going to eat Kit Kat bars. And the emotional part of the brain says, eat the Kit Kat bars now. We don't feel good. And eventually, the emotional part will beat down the intelligent part and I will eat the cupcakes. But what if I could find a way to live? What if I could find a way to live, Tara, where my emotions do not build up to the level where they become toxic enough so that that part of the brain says eat the food? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better. And that process of bringing God into the equation is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about replacing the effect of the food for the effect of the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. One has devastating side effects, and the other has a lifetime of happiness. I need God. I need a power greater than myself. I'm going to pray to that God. 
and I'm going to do his work well, page 63. I have a new employer. I mean, I could go on and on about this. I could come to your town and do a whole retreat just on this alone. But the bottom line is I must be willing to believe in that power, and then I must act on that willingness to believe by taking action. And that action will bring God into my life in a way so that my emotions will not build up to that level. I don't have the problem, so I don't need the solution, and I don't eat the food. I hope that answers it, because I could do a whole, a whole thing on that one alone. But thank you for the question. I'm glad you asked it. We'll save that for another Sunday special. Thank you, Tara, for your question. Sarit. And anyone else? Anne S. Anne? This is Denise. Say your name again, I'm sorry. Denise. Denise. Okay, let's go with those three, beginning with Sarit, please. Hi, Harlan. Thanks so much for your share. Um, I just, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling. I'm abstinent for um, two months and plus for me, which is really long, but I... I die every day to eat, and I just—it's mm-hmm. not getting easier. My food is so clean. You're maybe dieting. I, maybe there's just something. You're dieting with food support, Marie. You're absolutely dieting. You do need help. I agree with you. You need to get to a meeting, or you need to get a a, a sponsor that knows the big book, and you need to work the steps. I am. I'm working the steps. I'm working the steps. You need to steps. you need to change whatever you're doing. It's not working, and you're eventually going to go back into the food. What you're doing is not recovery. What you're doing is you're dieting with group support. You're eating, or excuse me, you're not eating, but you are, you are stark raving sober. You are not happy about your sobriety at all. You are getting up every morning with this resolve not to eat, and you're, you're talking about the food, the food, the food, the food, and there's a whole world out there. You need to change sponsors immediately. You need to get somebody that will know the big book so you can have a spiritual awakening so that you will not only not eat, but you will do so happily. Because right now, huh, right now, you are dieting with group support and everything must change. Everything. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. I wish I, had a, I wish I had a softer answer for you, but I know the power of this illness, and it's mind over matter, Fari. It doesn't mind killing you, and you don't matter. Thank you, Sarit, for the question. Anne S., your turn. Star one to unmute and S. I think we lost her. Maybe we lost her, Harlan. All right, let's go on to Denise H. And then we'll try to catch Anne. Denise. Okay, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Hello? Okay. Uh, Harlan, um, my question is, Oh, I, I'm just amazed at all the backstory that you know about Bill. And I'm wondering where you got the information. Are there books available that I could access? Plenty myself? of them. Plenty of okay. them. Pass It On is the, uh, is the approved biography of Bill Wilson. Pass It On. There's AA Comes of Age. There's Dr. Bob and the Old Timers. 
there is language of the heart, which is a collection of Bill's grapevine um, uh, letters through the years. There is a ton of information. None of this came to me uh, in a dream, trust me. Uh, and there's tons of stuff, you know, that you can read about and stuff on the Internet and things. It is, it's an amazing story, and it never, never, never ceases to amaze me, the miracle of how God put this together. I absolutely believe that the big book was written by God. Bill had three and a half years of sobriety. I have 16 years of abstinence. I'm lucky if I can put together a coherent postcard. And the the things that God did to bring this together are just amazing, just amazing. But, yeah, there's plenty of books out there. Thank you, Denise, for the question. Ann S., your turn. I think we lost her. <laughs> Ann S., star one on mute. I know you were just here. This is Lois. May I speak when you have a moment? Let's go with you, Lois. Hi, good morning, Leah and Harlan. Thank you so much for the clarity. Wonderful. Um, I have a question about, you know, when when I try to give my sponsees written work to focus on, I put together an act. I put together an action list for them, you know, while they're trying to uh, keep the food down before we get to, you know, the rest of the steps. And I'm wondering, could you do a quick list and I could add to my um, action plan for sure. my space? Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Put the food down and work the steps. Put the food down and work the steps. That's the entire list. And keep working those steps for the rest of your life. Pass it to others, and you will find freedom beyond your wildest dreams. I do not desire excess food today. I just don't want it. It's not part of my life today. I don't want it. I don't care about it. And that's the list. Put the food down and work the steps. Dr. Bob had a list of three things. Trust God, clean house, help others. Thank you, Lois, for the question. Who else has a question for Harlan this morning? Star one to unmute. To Courtney unmute. from Virginia. Courtney, this anyone is else? Maria. Maria E. Maria Ann S. Ann S. Let's go with Ann S. Before we lose you again, <laughs> go for yes. it, Ann. Thank you. I had some difficulty unmuting. I really appreciate this meeting, and thank you for your service. The question I have is about um, the emotions that you spoke of. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say this, I, I'm not try- I am trying to be rigorously honest with myself. And often out of the blue, that mental obsession where the idea of a food pops into my head, I try mm-hmm. to check in and I'm not really feeling like I can identify an emotion in the moment. And I've mm-hmm. considered maybe it's simply boredom, although really it doesn't even feel like boredom. So, um, I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit more how that relates. Um, this is a bit new. Usually I just think, well, that's just the mental obsession. Um, but how might it relate to an emotion when I can't identify one? Thank you. Then that's at the time when that food pops into my head. Remember that that is the end result of me allowing these emotions to fester. So 
So there is obviously something that is going on where you're frustrated or you're happy or you're sad or you're jealous or you're angry or you're scared. And we get so prone to stuffing these feelings because we are taught as children, we are taught as children, oh, don't feel that way. Oh, no, you're, I'm scared, Mom. Oh, no, you're not. No, you're not. I'm angry, Mom. Oh, no, you're not. No, you're not. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have the emotions. It just means that we're getting trained not to give, not to give them credibility. And it is the buildup of those emotions which will knock on the door of the emotional part of the brain. Now, the, the ego, the brain has three jobs. Make me feel better right now. Make me right. Make me right and make it so that I'm different from the crowd. I'm somehow different from everybody else. Okay, that's, that's what it does. And when those emotions build and you have a food thought, there is something that I'm missing when that happens to me. There is something that I am just allowing to fester. And in allowing that to fester, that's where those food thoughts come in. And then I'm going to try to fight the food thought. And many of us try to fight the food thought can't do it. I have to reach out and say, I have a food thought. I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm jealous. Whatever that is, I have to reach out. Because if I'm going to sit there and go toe-to-toe with a food thought, forget it. (laughs) Forget it. Not going to happen. I hope that answers it. But that is basically what's happening with me in in those scenarios, in those situations. Thanks, Ando. I'm glad we finally got finally got connected with you because we thought we lost you. Thank you, Anne. Elizabeth S. in Edmonton, Canada. Okay, wow. let's go Courtney, then Maria, then Elizabeth, please. Courtney, okay, your Courtney. turn. Thank you. This is Courtney in Virginia. Um, okay. Harlan, can you give me an example of, of what you say when you call somebody about step 10 or whatever? Okay. I was driving down the street and I saw a particular car, or I saw a particular girl, or I saw this house, or I started thinking about the fact that my friend is getting ready to retire, and he has a trust fund, and I don't. So I call my sponsor, or I call someone that knows the big book, and I say, I'm feeling jealous right now. I'm feeling scared that I won't be provided for. I'm feeling inadequate in this situation, whatever it is. And then we look to the basic defects of character. Is it selfishness? Am I trying to write the script? Is it self-seeking? Am I taking action to try to get my way? Is it dishonest? What is the nature of the dishonesty in this scenario? And then anger, and then we say fear for last because fear is always going to be driving the bus. Fear is going to be driving the bus because when I'm scared, that's going to be the 5-11 alarm fire that I'm going to have to put out. And I will usually put it out with Kit Kat bars and Raisinets and try to smother the fire with Doritos and pizza. So I can't do that. I have to reach out and find my part and then take action in step 10. We're talking all step 10 stuff here now. Uh, I'm going to have to take action. I'm going to have to discuss it with another person. I'm going to have to go make amends if I've harmed anybody. And I'm going to have to resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help. Courtney, if I do not resolute, resolutely need with purpose, if I do not try to help somebody else, and then love and tolerance of others is our coach, 
If I don't try to help somebody else out, I'm going to eat. I can put out the fire with action or I can put out the fire with pizza. Those are my choices. There's no third choice. There's no third Thank choice. you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Courtney. You're Maria, welcome, Courtney. your turn. Um, hi, this is Maria E. in Alabama. Um, thank you, Harley, uh, for your uh, talk today. My question is, when you take somebody through the steps in the big book, is it physically like reading page by page? Yes. And how does that process happen in, in a fairly short time? You go through it with them. You sit with them. or A lot of it I do on the phone. I sponsor people in different states, so I can't actually sit down with them. But I do it with them over the phone, and we go through it. I, I start sponsoring uh, early in the morning, very early in the morning. My day starts 3 a.m. And <clears throat> I sponsor a person in Germany. I sponsor people in you know, different parts of the country. We actually read through and sometimes when time constraints, I will point them to my podcast on the LA website, but the bottom line is we go through everything word by word, but we do it quickly. We move as fast as we can. We move as fast as we can. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you Thanks, for the question. Maria. Elizabeth S. Hi there. Um, it's Elizabeth S., a compulsive leader in Edmonton, Canada. Um, if I understand you correctly, it's the pile of emotions that build up that triggers mm-hmm. that mental twist. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, is it necessary to identify those emotions or is it just necessary move on to the choice of action versus picking up the food? That's a very good question. It's a well-thought-out question. Normally, it's more important to get to the defects of character. Normally, the defects of character are very simple. They are selfishness. I'm trying to write the script. Self-seeking. I'm taking action to try to force-feed my will into the situation. Fear, anger, dishonesty. These are the things we want to look at. These are the things that will kill us. It doesn't matter whether it's this emotion. What we're talking about is the defects of character, which will catapult me. And I like that catapult word because it's, whoa, all of a sudden, boom. I love it because it'll catapult me right into a sea of chocolate. So it's more important to identify the defect of character than it is to identify anything else. And what's the end game here? What's my part? Elizabeth, what's my part in this? And that usually comes when we get to the defect of fear. That's my part in things. What am I afraid of? Very unlikely I'm going to have this buildup of emotions without fear being involved. Very unlikely. But thanks, thanks for the question. That's a good one. Thank you, Elizabeth. Harlan, are you up for a couple more? Or you want to close? Um, let's do one more and then we'll close it down. How's that? Okay. Sounds great. All right. One more question. Star one to unmute to identify yourself. Star one to unmute. Hi, my name is Ray. Your name again? 
Yes, Gail. I believe I heard Lorraine. Go yes. ahead, Lorraine, with your question. You'll be the final question of the morning. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Harlan, for, again, uh, for sharing your the experience, strength, and hope. I have a the question I have is, after a, I've had a bad relapse, where do I go? Where do I start? What step I do? one. My first meet, this is my first meeting in months. Okay. Get a sponsor. Start working the steps as if you had never worked them before. Put out of your mind anything and everything you think you know about recovery, anything and everything you think you know about the big book. Put it aside and begin working the steps. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lorraine, for the question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Harlan, for all your time and energy and personal experience this morning that you shared with us. And I'm going to close the meeting in the way we always close, and that's from page 164. Her book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God if you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.